the Great Commission. We know it. We've heard it. We've heard sermons on it. We've, we've, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it your entire life long. But can I, can I be blunt? I know sometimes I ask questions I want answers. That time I didn't really want to answer because I'm just going to say it anyway. But, but I, I mean, I, I do want your, your permission. I mean, I, I, inside at least. A lot of it comes down to, like, why don't I see it happen then? And I want to be careful when I say that because I think it is happening in lots of places. So I'm not, I'm not being critical. Certainly I'm being critical of, of all of you. Maybe it's more reflection for myself. Why, why, why don't I see it happen as much then? Why do we struggle? Why do I struggle? Why do we struggle with, well, you're going to hear these later, but being a disciple. Why do I struggle with making disciples? Why is it hard for me? And this is a place where it's hard for me. It may not be for you, but for me it's hard to, to connect with and reach out and find people who are on the outside, who are not part of the kingdom of God yet, and and strive to bring them into the kingdom? Why is it difficult to live life with each other and help each other to grow in Christ so that we're teaching each other how it means to obey Jesus? That's really hard. And I find, and maybe this is why the message is coming the way it is, maybe it's why Paul wrote it the way he did. I find that that can be some of the most difficult places. We go to church with each other, right? We live life together, and quite frankly, I think, if anything, the last thing, two years has taught us about coronavirus and political elections and all kinds of racism stuff and all kinds, I, I find it shocking how easily we turn towards each other and are frustrated with each other and say all kinds of unkind things to each other and particularly to those who are in the body, who claim to be Christians, who say that, uh, who are, who say that their desire is to live out what the Bible teaches. And I know it gets sticky right away because it's like, well, it's very clear to me what it says and I'm guessing they would say the same thing. It's very clear to me what it says, and maybe that doesn't always come together. I said this last week when we read these verses, and we'll read them in a little bit, but I said this last week. I said, I, I, I ask yourself, why did Paul start with what I'm going to put up here today is the theme of unity? Why did Paul start his practical application of the theology that he had in the first two chapters of Ephesians? Why did he start with this mantra that there's one Lord one faith, one baptism. I skipped the first one. There's one uh, spirit. There's one, um, we'll, read, we'll read them a little bit. I, I just want to get them right because I, I need to say it right here. There's one body and one spirit, just as there's one hope to which you've been called, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all. Why did he start with that? Well, we're going to get to that in a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to throw up this verse, this verse first because uh, I'm going to try to get an intersection today between what we just read from Ephesians last week and uh, our theme of making disciples, and hopefully landing somewhere that's going to be very, very practical for us today. This is another place that's going to look a little different than normal. Hopefully not going to be as much of me up here talking, and as much as it's going to be some discussion. But um, the psalmist wrote these words, and I want to start here today. I'm supposing you know them already. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And he goes on to say some things, some comparisons. He says, that's like the dew that's on Mount Hermon. He says, that's like the oil that's running down Aaron's beard. It is in that place, he says, this is a bit of my fair paraphrase, but it's in that place when brothers are dwelling together in unity, it's in that place that God's blessing resides. That's how that, that psalm ends. It's a very short psalm. You can go back and read it at uh, some point if you want to. But I want to just start with the question of why. 
Why does the psalmist say this? Why is it good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity? What's the reason? Why, is there, why the stress? Why the, why the emphasis? And we're going to get to why Paul's, uh, the same, it's kind of the same question. Why did Paul start with unity as he talks about application? Why is that the first thing? Why does it matter so much if the church is united, if brothers and sisters are united, if they're dwelling, living together in unity? Why does it matter so much? What's the big deal? Glenn, you just, I, I mean, I did ask you to share because I thought you had some things to say about the subject, and you certainly did. I'm really glad I did ask you to share, so thank you. But that was sort of the opposite side, right? Bitterness is the thing that divides, and we're going to talk about unity. And there's a whole lot of stuff that isn't going to be said today, I'm sure, that could be said or should be said or however that might come out. But why, why is it so important? And I just want us to spend a little, a little bit of time before we jump in anywhere else. I want to spend a little time just thinking back through Scripture. We're going to do very high level, very quick, hopefully, summary of what some things that, are that Scripture talks about. We're going to go way back to the beginning. When you think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then they, they sin, they disobey God's command to not eat of the fruit of the tree uh, there in the middle, uh, the good and evil, knowledge of good and evil, and they disobey, and immediately something happens, right? Immediately something changes. Now, they, they, know they're, they, they know they're naked, and they have this conversation, but the end result of that is what? What's the end result of Adam and Eve's sin? Hey, you guys all talked, but you all talked at once, so I didn't actually hear anything that anybody said. What's that? Separation. They were kicked out of the garden, Right? They removed from the garden and, an, and a cherubim with a flaming sword was placed at the entrance so that there, there had to be a separation was being made. So immediately from the very get-go in Scripture, we see that there was division that happened. Cain and Abel. Cain uh, killed his brother Abel and then he was, received a mark in punishment and he was made to wonder. There's a separation. He left where, where was that, right? You could just kind of walk through Scripture. There's lots of these. Um, the, the Tower of Babel. When they were building a tower and they wanted to make a name for themselves and God said, this isn't good. And he came down and confused their language and he scattered them across the, across the earth, and moved them out away from each other. There was a separation that happened, right? Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Oh, think of Jacob, right? Jacob and Esau. That whole story is full of separation, right? It's full of the decisions that people were making and the results of those decisions were separation. Just walk right through Scripture, and we're going to see over and over and over and over again the reality that the New Testament says that is the wages of sin is death. Death, of course, ultimately is separation. The result of sin is separation. So when all of us have sin, right, because that's scriptural, there's not a person sitting here or anywhere in this entire globe or has ever sat in this entire globe other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, who can uh, exclude themselves from saying that there's sin. So where sin exists, there's separation. It causes division. Now, I mean, all those are great because they're in the Bible, but how about we just realize that, like, when I have sin in my life, and I've seen this happen I've seen this happen in Heidi and I's relationship over and over again. When I have sin in my life, then there's, there's something imperceptible that begins to happen, and there's a separation. We're not on the same page. See, it gets a lot more real all of a sudden, right? It's fine to talk about examples like Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve, and there's people that lived long ago. But let's not kid ourselves. We have seen the results or the evidence of this over and over again in our lives. Have you not? When sin exists it causes separation in our lives. It causes division between people. Would you agree with that? 
You're gonna have better get used to talking because I'm gonna have you talk a lot later on. So you just get used to talking. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I can see the results in my own life between my wife and I, my children and I, me and other people, that when something goes wrong, when I make a choice that's dishonoring to God, inevitably it begins to do this. Obviously between God and I, no question. But even between us. Now, if you begin to think about this critically, you can immediately see why unity in the church is so important because one of the things that drives us apart is sin, which means if there's division, that means there's sin. Which means the church isn't holy. And Glenn, you just read a verse that said that without holiness, we don't get to see God. So if Jesus wants a bride at the end when he comes back, that means we have to remove division and which means we have to live holy lives and an example or an outgrowth or a, a fruit of holiness is unity. Now, as we go through today, I want to just clarify a few things because I think uh, we, all come with, we all come with different cultural backgrounds, different things we've grown up in. I particularly come from one, and you, most of you know that I grew up Amish, so I, like, I have some of that in my background. And I just, a couple of statements, maybe these won't mean that much to you, but I think it's important to recognize that unity, when we're going to talk about unity, like all the morning this morning, but unity is not the same as conformity. Do you understand the difference? Unity is not conformity. We do not have to all look alike or uh, think exactly alike or come out on exactly the same place on a lot of things. We understand there are some things that are very clearly said in Scripture, and in those things we should be united. There should be no difference. You understand that there's a lot of things that we get out of Scripture that are convictions. They may not be specifically stated, but they are our convictions, and those we hold very dearly, and we ought to because if we've been actually convicted by the Holy Spirit, then we better not walk away from that because that's being obedient to the Holy Spirit. I do think we have to be able to give a tiny bit of grace to people whose convictions are not exactly like ours. And then there's a whole other category that I'm going to call preferences that are the ways that we think are the best ways to live out Scripture. And there are a lot of those. And on those, we absolutely must give each other grace because we don't all have and we will not all have the same preferences. I understand it gets really tricky deciding which ones are which, right? <laughs> What's a preference, what's a conviction, what's a scriptural mandate is what I would call it. I didn't really give a name to that first one. So I understand that this doesn't just like solve everything. Like I've said, oh, that makes, no, you said that, it makes perfect sense. Because there's some things that I hold as scriptural mandates that others say they're convictions and some others may even say they're preferences, <laughs> which I disagree with a lot. But I mean, that's how it is, right? I say all that to, rec to just say up front, as I put this emphasis on unity, I don't want us distracted by the things that divide us, that we are like, but I say this, I want us to focus today on how sin and bitterness that Glenn talked about, or unforgiveness, or uh, what I'm gonna put clearly in the category of preferences, just different preferences for living out faithfulness to Jesus, how those things divide us when they ought not. I made the statement before, and I'll make it again today. There is clearly separation called for in scripture, right? We're not to be of the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. We are to come out from among them. Paul wrote uh, in, I think it's in Romans or also 1 Corinthians. I get those two mixed up sometimes. We're supposed to come out from the world and take no part in, from it. We're, not, we're supposed to be separated from it. Clearly, that's true. That's, there's a division that needs to be made. Within the body, however, those that are called to be separate from the world, the ecclesia, the called out body 
of Christ, there sh we should strive for unity. We still, and we're going to get to some reasons next week, uh, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from now, Lord willing, but we still are not all going to see things the same way, right? There's going to be some differences within the body, how we just understand things. Some of that's how we're wired. Some of that's how God created us. Some of, this, some of the giftings that God gave us, for example. But there must be unity. We must recognize that there is, what we're going to get to in a little bit here, there is one, uh, one uh, body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. For some reason, I can't get those first ones right in my head this morning. Jesus came to bring that division that's caused by sin uh, back together. Jesus came to make peace, right? Paul has spent a lot of time in Ephesians, so I'm just going to quickly move to those verses. A lot of time in Ephesians so far already in helping us to see that Jesus brings peace. Jesus takes the dividing wall between people, thereby sin, thereby whatever. He takes that dividing wall and he tears it down and he makes it there's one body. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and had broken down in this flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Remember all those together with words we've been coming again, uh, onto in, in Ephesians. We were, we were made alive together with Christ. We were raised together with Christ. We were seated together with Christ. All of us were that together, which is why he can then look at all of us and say, together we are, we are partakers together. We are joined closer together. We are citizens together with. We are a, a building being built together with for the, uh, for the Holy Spirit of God to dwell. And all those together with words that we have. We are co-heirs. We are heirs together with each other. We, I think we've come up with nine of them so far. There's three sets of three through the book of Ephesians so far that we've uncovered that Paul keeps using this together with word. We are together with each other, which of course leads us to where the words I want to read just so we can keep trucking on, uh, keep moving here. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. Let's read them. We read them last week. Maybe you weren't here. We're going to read them again today. Paul says these words, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager, I tell you, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he says these lines I've been stumbling over a couple times now. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all or in you all. Father, I want to pause before we go any further this morning. I want to pause so that as we uh, prepare to just walk through the rest of the message time that, uh, that our ears are tuned to you, our hearts are open to you, our eyes are looking at you, focused on you. I pray in the name of Jesus against the distractions and against the but-ifs that are gonna come in from the enemy as we go through the rest of today. That as our flesh, uh, prompted by the enemy, wants to squ squirm out from any kind of things that you want to tell us, we want to just, we want this to be a place where your Holy Spirit has freedom and reigns in us today, that we will respond to you this morning, Father. We thank you for Jesus Christ. He is the captain of our salvation. It is through his body that one body has been made, which is his church, 
And we are part of that this morning if we have confessed. And so this morning we want to just allow you to speak to us, God, through your word, by your Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all know the Great Commission. Jesus gave us a command which most of us struggle mightily to follow. He said, you should go into all the world and you should make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You should teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And of course, he ends that by saying, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. When we wrestled with this verse beginning of the year, I broke it down into three specific parts. You're going to see these three specific parts as we go through our Sunday school class uh, starting in March, three different units, three thing, things that we have to recognize or have to wrestle with as that, that truth of that great commission finds its way into our lives and actually finds its way through us and out to the people around us. First of all, if we want to make disciples, we have to be a disciple, right? So we have to spend time with talking about the fact that, that we have to be a disciple. You can't make something that, you don't, that you're not. You can't lead someone where you're not already. You can't, you can't, I mean, I suppose God can use words you say to make a disciple out of you, but it just doesn't usually work that way. You, you don't usually uh, bring someone in the kingdom when you are not actually in the kingdom yourself. You don't really lead them into obedience to scripture when you're not actually obeying it yourself, right? It just doesn't work that way. So we have to be disciples, and we're gonna spend some time, uh, Sunday school quarter, we're gonna spend some time wrestling with the things scripture says that define what disciples are and just looking at our lives and saying, does that fit me? Is that who I am? Is that what I look like? Is that what I do? And if not, why not? Or if not, how can that change? Clearly the command part of, his, of, of Jesus' voice there is that we are to make disciples. We're to take people who are out there who have not yet confessed Jesus Christ for he died for them all, right? His sin has forgiven all of their sins. The problem is they have not received, they haven't understood that yet. They haven't seen that yet. They, they've, they're not there yet where they can say, Oh, thank you for that gift. I'm, I'm going to give myself to you, Jesus. They're not there yet. And, it's, and, and we get to be his ambassadors is what Paul says. We get to be tools that God uses to bring people into the kingdom. So we are to make disciples. And of course, when they're in, just bringing them in isn't enough. That's maybe one of the places the church has fallen down so much. It's an emphasis on bringing people in and forgetting that once they're there, they got to figure out what it means to walk faithfully. Well, guess what? By the way, just be careful with this because we also have to figure out what it means to walk faithfully, right? Maybe that's actually why we are very bad at that end of discipleship is because we're kind of bad at ourselves. It's kind of hard for us to also continue to grow in faithfulness to Jesus Christ and obedience to the scriptures. Just being honest. But we're supposed to teach them to be a disciple. I just want to point something out. Joe said it this morning. I'm just going to come back and reemphasize it. I actually framed these phrases very specifically. I know uh, sometimes I get anal about things, and sometimes I think it's a good thing I get anal about things. I, I, I framed it very specifically because I don't want us to be lost in this grand thing about I'm supposed to help save the entire world. I actually really did it singularly so that I can look at each one of you and say, you are to be a disciple. Forget about everyone else. You are to be a disciple. And also, I believe with everything I have, and I hope you do too, that God wants to use you to make at least one other person a disciple. That God has given unique access and unique giftings to you and has brought unique travel paths in your life that you're crossing the path with someone that you can bring into the kingdom who is not there yet. And that's all I want you to worry about. 
I don't want you to worry about saving nameless, countless, hundreds of other people. I want you to recognize that God wants to use you to make one other person become a disciple. Now, maybe there's more than that, too. I don't know. When, uh, just being honest, when Joe, this morning, when you said, uh, maybe I shouldn't put my wife in the spot like this, but when you said, you know, we have one, then she leaned over to me and she said, I was given seven of them, which is true, right? Because we have seven children. So there's seven people that... Uh, that are given right to us that are ours to make disciples and teach them to obey. So don't discount that fact. Don't look too far outside your house to start with, right? But at the very least, I'm pretty convinced that for every one of us, there's at least one person that God would love to use you to influence them to become a believer. And then, of course, you're supposed to teach that person. And it doesn't often always work so, you know, singularly, but I want us to focus on it uh, that way just to break it down simply. What I'd like to do now, you, if you have a handout with me, with you, or you, well, if you picked up a bulletin, you do. You may not know when it was there, but on the back side of the bulletin, I have four passages listed. We could go, and I mean, trust me, we could go in lots of places this morning. But I want to focus on unity and making disciples. And I'm going to just leave this screen up here because I want us to think about these three aspects, being a disciple, making a disciple, and teaching them to be a disciple. And I'm gonna read, we're gonna read four passages together. And I, I, if, if with your permission or with your help, I'd like to just have a little bit of discussion with each one of them as to how, what they have to do with unity, for one, and how that reflects on each of these things. And not all of them are gonna reflect on every single one of them. And uh, it's not like I have all this all put together or have answers in mind necessarily. I'm pretty sure some of you will th think of some things that I haven't thought of. I hope so. I know the Holy Spirit is here and is resident in you as well as in me, so um, I'm gonna, let's go to John first. So flip in your Bible, turn there with me so you can have the pages in front of you, the words in front of you. I'm not going to put them on the screen here. Uh, John chapter 17. Now, in John 13, I think it's verse 34, 35, somewhere around there, Jesus has already made clear that one of the ways that we will be identified as his followers, that people will know that we are his followers, is if we what? Anybody know what this says? Yeah, if we love each other. So that has a lot to do with unity, right? Because love is a decision to be committed to each other even uh, in the midst of some differences that might pop up or some things that might pop up that hurt each other or some things that we do that, that are sinful toward each other that causes division. They'll know that we are his disciples by, we love, by love. But I want to go to Jesus' high priestly prayers, what it's called in Scripture often. Now, we're not going to take time to read the whole thing this morning. I'm going to just read a couple of verses from uh, uh, chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. I'll read them out loud, and then we're going to have a little conversation about them. Jesus, in the middle of his prayer, we're kind of jumping in the middle there. I do not ask for these only, meaning those right in front of him right there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now, this one's probably fairly easy, so we'll start with some easy questions here. Where do we see representations of unity in this text, in these verses? What, what, what do they have to say about unity or being united? Just throw some things out. Again, this is probably, it, the sermon's going to go really long if you don't talk, because I'm just going to wait for you. So just don't be shy. Throw some, throw some things out. Where do we see unity in these verses? What's that? Okay, we see between Jesus and the Father. And, and what's the phrase there? He says, I'm in you, you're in me. He uses those in words, right? Okay, very good. 
What else do we see talked about unity? How, what else, why, why did I bring this passage in today? Y'all better buy me. What's that? Aha, so he, you're taking what, she, what Carol said. You're saying, okay, so they're one, Jesus and the Father, but he says, what I really want is that they may be one in the same way. Now think about that. Think about that. Remember Paul's phrase, eager to maintain the bond or the unity of the Spirit, the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Remember those words, eager? Last week we talked about the word bond. Like, like how often do we see it as, as it's chains, that, that unity we have in the Spirit is like chaining us together. Now think of what Niall just said. Jesus is praying that we would be one just as much as Jesus and the Father were one. Now how, how, how tight do you think Jesus and the Father are? It's kind of a rhetorical question, right? They're like in separate, like, they're like three in one, right? And he says, I want you to be united like that. I don't think it's a secret that we're kind of not so good at that, right? Like we usually don't look at each other that way. We usually don't think we're quite so connected to each other as that. Now, if you're reading that and you got tired of hearing the same phrase again, Jesus is a bit repetitive when he prays, right? He uses that phrase a couple of times. He says that they may all be one, that they may be one even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one. He uses the, the, the emphasized form of that at the end. They may become perfectly one. So I think it's safe to say, not just from Paul's verses this morning, but it's safe to say from Jesus' own prayer that Jesus is really concerned about us being united, about us being one, about us being tied together in some way. Now again, the entire body of Christ is unified, but the expression of it at the local level is really probably where we're gonna spend most of our time today because we can't necessarily talk about how we're united to the brothers and sisters in India, for example, though we are. And it's really cool if you ever have an opportunity to be somewhere else in a place where they don't speak your language and you have a worship service together because there's a sense of unity that you have through the Holy Spirit that defies all cultural and language barriers, which is amazing. If you don't, haven't had that experience, you should really try to get that experience because it's really cool. But we're here this morning together with each other, right? So we can deal with who we have sitting here and what's going on in our hearts. So why does Jesus so concerned about being one? What clues from this text and looking at the things I put up here about the Great Commission, Jesus' mandate for us that we are to be disciples, we are to make disciples, and we are to teach them to obey. How does, what clues do we have from what Jesus said? Does, how does that intersect with these phrases? How does that, what, is, what does this unity have to do with making disciples? That's really what I'm asking. Kermit. All right. Actually, Jesus, again, is repetitive because there's two of them in there. You picked out the first one. He says, I would, this is my paraphrase, I want you to be united, the church, the body of believers, all those that are going to come after and believe in me, I want you to be united so that the world would know that I was sent from the Father. And he ends that by saying, so that the world would know that God loves them. Just to help us out, that fits very firmly in that middle one right up here, right? Making disciples. Because both of those 
uh, focuses, fo- foci, I don't know how that works. Both of those places that Jesus was talking about was on the world, right? That the world would know that Jesus was sent and that God loves them. Now think about this. Think about this the next time you want to uh, allow some division to develop within the body. That Jesus says, the world will know that I was sent from God and the world will know that God loves them when the church is united. (laughs) I don't know that we have to think very long and hard about why we are kind of bad at making disciples. Right? Tell me you're tracking with me here, right? You understand what I'm saying? We're not really good at making disciples if we're so busy fighting with each other. If we're so busy trying to figure out how that person's wrong and I'm right, or, or if we're, it's not just about that, or if there's so much sin among us that that sin is causing division and unforgiveness and bitterness and all kinds of fractures, And to the world we become a voice that doesn't say anything anymore, or it says the wrong thing, actually. Anybody want to pick anything else out of there? Anything else this, these text, this text has to do with uh, any of these things? There are a few more I think we could tease out if you want to spend some time with it. Okay, God's glory has been given to us through him. Now, I would say that's actually really has a lot to do, what you just said, has a lot to do with the being disciple, being a disciple part, that we are to be disciples. And one of the things that God wants to do is when people are rescued and come into the kingdom, he wants, he says, you're my son and daughter now, right? I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you. His glory rests in us. I wanna display myself through you to people around you. I would say the thing that we talked at the beginning about Jesus being in us, just like Jesus is in the Father, and them being in us, that's also has to do with being in us. It actually also, of course, has to do with teaching them to obey, right? Because that's part of what we're... Think about it. Think about it. What are we going to say back to each other? Let me just... I'll just make... I'll, that, that's going to sound too, like, bland and, and huge. I'll just put it, make it really personal. What am I going to say to you... When you come to me and say, Merlin, there's something in your life that I see that is not the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the evidence of Jesus living inside of you. And don't you know your body's a temple where God's glory rests in? I think you should stop that. What am I going to say back to that? Right? I mean, that is what it means to help each other obey and do, follow the commands to say, you, should, you ought not to do that. You ought not to go there. You ought not to, to, to wear that. You ought not to think that. You ought not to participate in that. You ought not to watch that. I mean, take your pick. All of those things, when God's glory is resting in us through his Holy Spirit, in my opinion, it's the inarguable thing. We can't say, well, but, you know, it's my, no, it's not your body. We've covered that, right, in Ephesians? That's why we spent time covering it. It's not your body. God created you, and Jesus redeemed you. Let's keep going. We're going to see some of the same things. Turning your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 1. Paul is going to write some words that sound, are going to sound pretty similar, pretty familiar to Ephesians. 
that we read already, but Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted that you, sorry, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So first question again, how do we see unity in these verses? How do I bring, why am I reading these verses to you this morning? What does that have to do with unity? That's right. We're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul says, listen, Paul says, I don't care if, if I'm coming back to see you or if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail and never see you again. What I want is that I hear about you and that you're walking in a manner that's worthy of the calling that God has given you. And that means to him right away again, he goes, look at that. He did it twice now. Ephesians and Philippians, he connected walking worthy. The very first thing he's going to talk about is that you are united with each other, that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind. You are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In a sense, this is the picture that Paul is painting for us of what a church ought to be like. So what do these words have to do with being a disciple, making a disciple, or teaching them to be a disciple? Let's spend some time with that. How do you see How do you see the evidence of Jesus' great commission and our call to make disciples tied together with unity, with with being of one spirit, of one mind, side by side? We're going to suffer. suffer. Did you notice the words he uses? We taught through Philippians. I taught through Philippians a long time ago, so many of you probably don't remember this, but I remember that word very specifically because it's the root word of the word granted has been granted to you. This root word is the same word as the word grace. In God's grace... I could phrase it that way. In God's grace, you are allowed not just, it's been given you the the privilege of not just believing in Jesus, but suffering for his name's sake. Woo. That is not the prosperity gospel. We're going to suffer. That's being a disciple, right? Um, Remember Jesus, I think, said these words. No student is above his master, right? And a disciple, when he is fully formed, will be like his teacher. What was Jesus like? What happened to Jesus? What did Jesus experience? Let's not for a second believe the lies that say that we will not have to follow the path that Jesus followed. It has been in God's grace given to us that we may not only believe in him, but suffer with him on his behalf for his sake. Okay, I like that. What else? Okay. Perfect. Absolutely. And we're going to find this a lot, by the way. It's going to fit kind of the first one, being a disciple, and kind of the last one, teaching them, because they kind of are the same thing, right? One is what's happening in us, the other is what's happening together as we are all growing. But that's exactly right. Again, the reminder to each of us. Our lives should look like something different when the gospel takes a hold of us. There should be something that, that the manner that we live should be worthy. Now, what, what do you think is worthy of the gospel? Like is, that, is that like, is that like a pretty low bar, like the gospel? You know, it's just a, 
well, we should, there's some things we should get right, but a lot of it's pretty negligible, right? Is that a low bar? When you think of the worthiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that a low bar or is that a high bar? That's a high bar, right? Like that's why Paul says it the way he does. So much room for us to recognize that we can grow in our lives and together we need to grow in our lives, right? Again, what does it look like to exhort and encourage each other as we walk through life and we struggle with sin and we struggle with, with like trying to figure out what to do in situations we struggle with our flesh, we need to do this and God, we need to do this or we struggle with just getting distracted and we struggle with all the things the world has to offer to come alongside of each other and say, listen, remember, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lives are supposed to, to, to reflect the worthiness of what Jesus did for you and I. Now, depending on how you take the middle statement there, when he says that we are supposed to be uh, side by side uh, fighting for the faith of the gospel, depending on how you take that phrase, it could be applied to any uh, different ones of those things. For example, uh, he definitely uses two kinds of words uh, tied together, the striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and the conflict that he has and you think about the engagement, the conflict that Paul was engaged in was definitely a church planting, bringing people into the kingdom kind of conflict, right? So from that sense, I think it's very clear that we could read from this text that Paul has in mind that the unity of the church will actually affect bringing people into the kingdom. That as they are fighting side by side, united of the same uh, one spirit, one mind, that that's what enables them to actually go into the world and make converts and bring them into the kingdom. Because he, he, he ties those together. He says, you, church, ought to be fighting side by side for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel, just like I am fighting. Right? Just like I'm fighting. The fight that I'm in and the fight that Paul was in was to, uh, was to fight for the gospel, was to bring people into the kingdom. He was an apostle planting churches, taking the gospel who hadn't gone before. So the, clearly there's a making disciple kind of edge to what Paul is trying to tell them. And believe me, our unity or lack thereof does greatly affect our ability to make disciples. At a very basic level, when we are focused inwardly and what's happening inside and, and worried about all the, the different things happening, then we are, by nature, cannot even be focused outwardly at all. He also tells more things about that, right? He says, now notice what he says here. We sometimes think of the gospel proclamation as being, uh, being, you know, this offer that, you know, Jesus, what Jesus did for you and this wonderful, just enter and Jesus has forgiven your sins. But in this case, he says, when you're fighting side by side and you're not frightened by your opponents, when you stand under the, 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 the onslaught of your opponents, guess what? That is a sign of their destruction and your salvation. And when there's signs of their destruction and your salvation, that is in and of itself a gospel proclamation. It is. So when we stand united as a church under the onslaught of our culture, it is a sign of their destruction and our salvation, and it is a gospel witness to make disciples, according to the Scripture. You could take that statement a different way, which would apply it to more, the, more teaching them to be a disciple, because you're contending for the faith, if you put the emphasis on the faith, so that we will keep the faith, so that as those onslaughts come, so that when I see a brother or sister in the church and they're struggling because there's an onslaught happening in their life, that I walk over there and I help with one mind. We're together, united, and striving for that faith. I talked about that, uh, I think, a week ago or so ago. That we pray that people don't lose their faith when they're being tested. That's the teaching them to be a disciple part. 
We hang in there. We fight for each other. Not that I want this reminder, but those words came very true last week, didn't they? Uh, two weeks ago, sorry, two weeks ago. It was two weeks ago when I said it, because it was the day that Mabel passed away. Because I said those words, and then in the end, I was given an opportunity to pray for Irvin's faith that it would not uh, walk away during this trial, that it would not be lost during this trial. That is a picture of us in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. At any moment, and uh, at every moment, there are different ones of us in this body who are struggling with their faith. And in our unity enables us to walk with each other and build them up and encourage them and keep them in the faith. You could take the statement that way. Let's keep going because this is going to take really long if we don't keep going. Romans, let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 15. We'll do the same thing. Maybe not spend so much time with this one. We'll see though. Who knows what the Lord wants to do. Romans chapter 15. Let me make this comment before I read this. It's pretty easy to talk about our unity and focus sort of out there and be like we're making disciples but there's a whole other aspect of this is how we treat each other within the church. Let's read these verses. Romans chapter 15. Very first words out of the gate. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Wow. We could stop with that verse and talk about it for a while, right? If we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace then we have to know this verse pretty intimately. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What does these verses have to do with unity? Tell me. Anybody have some picked out from that, that text? How do we see unity in here? Don't be shy. What's that? We strengthen each other. Absolutely. How else? There's actually a direct reference made to it, right? What's that? Be patient with each other. Yep. Yep, especially with the weak. There's a direct reference made to unity, right? He prays in verse 5, or it's kind of a prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other in accord with Jesus Christ that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just make that statement clear, right? I mean, we could have started with this at the very beginning, but it's slid in here, so I'll say it right now. Our unity brings glory to God, so when there's disunity, guess what we're doing? We're bringing shame to the name of God, to God. We're, we're taking, we're stealing his glory. So what do these verses have to do with being a disciple or making a disciple or teaching them to be a disciple? Don't fall asleep on me yet. You can do that this afternoon. Ah, did you hear what Heidi said? She said, very practically speaking, if you're discipling an alcoholic, you would not drink alcohol in front of them. Even if you think it's okay to drink some alcohol, which there are believers that do, 
then you would not drink alcohol in front of them. Because according to this, um, now I would take that a step further because that's an individual relationship and we're talking about unity, which would mean if you would bring that person to church, guess what? You would also want your church to rally around that and to, uh, to reinforce that, right? Which is probably why many churches take the stance completely and say we don't do it at all because for that reason, to say it's not worth it, right? Because you never know who you have in your midst. There's a clear eye to the outside, right? In the very last verse, he says, so that um, you should welcome, let me just read it, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you realize how it doesn't work very well for people to bring people that they're trying to witness to into church when there's a whole bunch of division going on in the church, right? It's not gonna work. I mean, there's no, you're not comfortable. They're, they're, I mean, people have a sense about that, right? Like there's this underlying, like, something's not right here. How else do you see it? I, I answered one another. How else do you see that? Anything else in those verses that talk about being a disciple, making a disciple, teaching them to be a disciple? Oh, well, what do you think that means in a church context? Oh, this is gold. This is gold. What do you think that means in a church context? I don't know what you think it means. I, I know what I think it means. What do you think it means, Kervin? Ah, now I can see that going two ways, right? This statement, is, this statement is gold. I mean, Paul just sort of inserts it in there and he says, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said that all the reproaches that came to anybody, they're following him. He took the reproach of everyone on him, right? For his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. Uh, it was our shame and it was put on him. But in this context now, I think it goes both ways. I think I see it two ways. One, if you think you might be justified or it's a perfectly okay for you to reproach someone else who's a believer according to what Kervin just shared, based on what Paul just wrote, your reproach is actually falling on Christ. Did you hear what I said? If you are willing to reproach someone else, another believer certainly, you might even be so bold as to stretch it out to anyone who bears the image of God, but we'll stay with just within the church for now. If you're willing to reproach or speak ill of someone who's a believer or someone who's in the church here, your reproach is falling on Christ. Now, I would couple that around, I would back that around from the other angle and say that the angle that Paul is coming from when he says that the strong should bear with the failings of the weak should also be to recognize that when someone speaks ill of you, recognizing that Christ is the great burden bearer, that is why we forgive or we don't hang on. That's why we, we say, hey, I, I'm not gonna get upset about that. I'm not, gonna fight. I'm, not, I'm not gonna strike back. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. But it's so that we understand that those reproaches are not against us directly. I mean, they're against God first and foremost, they're against Jesus. But also, just as our Savior Jesus took people's reproaches, I think it's a little bit what Peter meant when he said, love can cover a multitude of sins. In our household, I have a phrase that our kids hear all the time when they're walking around and every single thing offends them and everything gets under their skin, I tell them they should pull their ouchies in. They should not be so easily offended. They should bear reproach a little, a, little, a little easier. They should not be so easily offended. I think I said that phrase already. I'll just say it again because it's worth it. And there's times, I think, in our church lives, we should not be so easily offended.
There's a whole subject there that we don't have time to tap into. Maybe sometime later this year we will. But I want to turn to one more passage because I think it has to do with tonight. I want to have an eye on tonight. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 to 17, and then I want to close the service here. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 17 says this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he gives an example. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are the one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, I'm gonna stop there. I want you to understand, I wanna put this in context. Paul is saying here, this entire chapter here is about idolatry. So I don't, wanna, I don't want you to be mistaken and, and accuse me of taking it out of context. So I wanna be careful not to. Paul is, is, he's talking about idolatry and he's making a point. His point is that when you participate in communion, for example, that you are saying, I'm participating with Christ. So he's saying, just think about that as you participate in other things. In other words, you might say, well, I have freedom to participate in lots of things. I can participate in gambling or drinking. We used that example a little bit ago. Or I can participate in lots of things because I'm free. I'm in Christ. Those things are not a bondage to me. Well, you might be correct, Paul would say, I think. Except that, don't you understand that when you take part of the cup and the bread that you're going to do tonight, if you're here, that you are automatically saying that I'm participating in Christ when I do that? So how can you separate that? So that's the point Paul's making. I just want to make sure I, I teach the text. That's the point Paul is making, is that when you participate in things, like when you, when you do things, you're partic- you, you are participating with them. You can't not be. But what I really read these verses for is to remind us, because even in the midst of using an example, he uses the communion as an example, he also is teaching the very lesson that I'm teaching today. There's unity. Look at the words he says. We're participating with Christ when we, uh, when we drink the blood, take the, uh, drink the cup from the cup. When we break the bread, we are participating in Christ. And when all of us are participating in Christ together, that means we, are, we must see ourselves bound together. He says in verse 17, there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we're all partaking of the one bread. In other words, I could translate to us and say, if we are willing to allow divisions within the body, we are willing to say that Christ can be divided. And Paul says that's not how it is. I say this also because there's, we don't have time to go there this morning, but there's plenty of evidence in Scripture that when we come to the communion table as a body of believers, that's why it's critical for us to make sure there are no divisions among us. That we are not holding things against each other. That there's not unforgiveness or bitterness. That there's things that we're, uh, just holding against someone else and not willing to let go, things that we have been, become offended by. Or if there's sin, that sin has been re- forgiveness requested and forgiveness granted. Because these verses make it clear that if you're going to walk up here tonight in some respect and you're going to make yourself a participant together with Jesus, you cannot do that and not be participant together with the people that are in the body with you. Because you're all participating in the same Jesus and there's only one Jesus. So, Having said that, I want to go to the place where I really want to head. I want to uh, just clear that screen, put up this picture. Because I want to give, I, I told you this, was, I mean, part of the application was in talking about it, because I believe that we learn better when we get to talk about it. So that's why I wanted to let you give you a chance tonight, to, uh, this morning to talk. But part of the application is uh, going to be a lot more personal. It's going to be you listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to God, listening to Jesus, and uh, letting him speak to you, which he can do far better than I can. 
So I'm gonna close this morning by just having a bit of prayer time.